Standby for Places presents An Ideal Husband by Oscar Wilde. Produced by Frida Matea and Graydon Gund. Direction and sound effects by Frida Matea. Title music by David Beck. This production of An Ideal Husband stars in order of appearance Sally Ure as narrator, Torian Brackett as Mason and Vicomte de Nonjac, Margie Zarcone as Mrs. Marchmont, Roxy York as Lady Basildon, Scott Corrie as Lord Cavisham, Gabby Van Horn as Miss Mabel Chilton, Susan S. McGuinness as Lady Markby, Alexandra Kopko as Mrs. Cheveley, Devon Yates as Lady Gertrude Chilton, and Montgomery Morrow as Sir Robert Chilton. Kevin Sebastian plays Lord Arthur Goring, and Kyle Mara is Phipps. Third Act The Library in Lord Goring's House An Adam Room On the right is the door leading into the hall. On the left, the door of the smoking room. A pair of folding doors at the back open into the drawing room. The fire is lit. Phipps the butler is arranging some newspapers on the writing table. The distinction of Phipps is his impassivity. He has been termed by enthusiasts the ideal butler. The Sphinx is not so incommunicable. He is a mask with a manner. Of his intellectual or emotional life history knows nothing. He represents the dominance of form. Got my second buttonhole for me, Phipps? Yes, my lord. Rather distinguished thing, Phipps. I am the only person of the smallest importance in London at present who wears a buttonhole. Yes, my lord. I have observed that. You see, Phipps, fashion is what one wears oneself. What is unfashionable is what other people wear. Yes, my lord. Just as vulgarity is simply the conduct of other people. Yes, my lord. And falsehoods, the truths of other people. Yes, my lord. Other people are quite dreadful. The only possible society is oneself. Yes, my lord. To love oneself is the beginning of a lifelong romance, Phipps. Yes, my lord. Don't think I quite like this buttonhole, Phipps. Makes me look a little too old. Makes me almost in the prime of life, eh, Phipps? I don't observe any alteration in your lordship's appearance. You don't, Phipps? No, my lord. I am not quite sure. For the future, a more trivial buttonhole, Phipps, on Thursday evenings. I will speak to the florist, my lord. She has had a loss in her family lately, which perhaps accounts for the lack of trivality your lordship complains of in the buttonhole. Extraordinary thing about the lower classes in England. They are always losing their relations. Yes, my lord. They are extremely fortunate in that respect. Hmm. Any letters, Phipps? Three, my lord. Want my cab round in twenty minutes? Yes, my lord. <laughs> Phipps, when did this letter arrive? It was brought by hand just after your lordship went to the club. That will do. Yes, my lord. Lady Chilton's handwriting on Lady Chilton's pink notepaper. That is rather curious. I thought Robert was to write. And what Lady Chilton has got to say to me. I want you. I trust you. I am coming to you. Gertrude. I want you. I trust you. I am coming to you. So she has found out everything. 
Poor woman. <sighs> Poor woman. But what an hour to call. Ten o'clock. I shall have to give up going to the Berkshires. However, it is always nice to be expected and not to arrive. I'm not expected at the Bachelors, so I shall certainly go there. Well, I will make her stand by her husband. That is the only thing for her to do. That's the only thing for any woman to do. It is the growth of the moral sense in women that makes marriage such a hopeless, one-sided institution. Ten o'clock. She should be here soon. I must tell Phipps I'm not anyone else. Lord Caversham. Oh, why will parents always appear at the wrong time? Some extraordinary mistake in nature, I suppose. Delighted to see you, my dear father. Take my cloak off. Is it worthwhile, father? Of course it's worthwhile, sir. Which is the most comfortable chair? This one, father. It is the chair I use myself when I have visitors. Thank you. No draft, I hope, in this room. No, father. Glad to hear it. Can't stand drafts. No drafts at home. Good many breezes, father. Eh? Eh, don't understand what you mean. Want to have a serious conversation with you, sir? My dear father, at this hour? Well, sir, it is only ten o'clock. What is your objection to the hour? I think the hour is an admirable hour. Well, the fact is, father, this is not my day for talking seriously. I am very sorry, but it is not my day. What do you mean, sir? During the season, father, I only talk seriously on the first Tuesday in every month, from four to seven. Well, make it Tuesday, sir. Make it Tuesday. But it is after seven, father, and my doctor says I must not have any serious conversation after seven. It makes me talk in my sleep. Talk in your sleep, sir? What does that matter? You're not married. No, father, I am not married. That is why I've come to talk to you, sir. You have got to get married, and at once. Why, when I was your age, I had been an inconsolable widower for three months, and was already paying my addresses to your admirable mother. Damn, sir, it is your duty to get married. You can't always be living for pleasure. Every man of position is married nowadays. Bachelors are not fashionable anymore. They are a damaged lot. Too much is known about them. You must get a wife, sir. Look where your friend Robert Chilton has got to by probity, hard work, and a sensible marriage with a good woman. Why don't you imitate him, sir? Why don't you take him as your model? I think I shall, father. I wish you would, sir. Then I should be happy. At present, I make your mother's life miserable on your account. You are heartless, sir, quite heartless. I hope not, father. And it is high time you get married. You are thirty-four years of age, sir. Yes, father, but I only admit to thirty-two. Thirty-one and a half when I have a really good buttonhole. This buttonhole is not trivial enough. I tell you you are thirty-four, sir. And there is a draft in this room besides, which makes your conduct worse. Why did you tell me there was no draft? I feel a draft, sir. I feel it distinctly. So do I, father. It's a dreadful draft. I will come and see you tomorrow, father. We can talk over anything you like. Let me help you on with your cloak, father. No, sir. I have called this evening for a definite purpose, and I am going to see it through at all costs to my health or yours. Put down my cloak, sir. Certainly, father. But let us go into another room. There is a dreadful draft here. Phipps, is there a good fire in the smoking room? Yes, my lord. Come in there, father. Your sneezes are quite heart-rending. Well, sir, I suppose I have a right to sneeze when I choose. Quite so, father. I was merely expressing sympathy. Damn sympathy. There is a great deal too much of that sort of thing going on nowadays. I quite agree with you, father. If there was less sympathy in the world, there would be less trouble in the world. That's a paradox, sir. I hate paradoxes. 
So do I, father. Everybody one meets is a paradox nowadays. It is a great bore to make society so obvious. Do you always understand what you say, sir? Yes, father. If I listen attentively. If you listen attentively, conceited young poppy. Phipps, there is a lady coming to see me this evening on particular business. Show her into the drawing room when she arrives. You understand? Yes, my lord. It is a matter of the gravest importance, Phipps. I understand, my lord. No one else is to be admitted, under any circumstances. I understand, my lord. Ha! Ah, that's probably the lady. I shall see her myself. Well, sir, am I to wait attendance on you? In a moment, father. Please have a seat in the smoking room. I'll be with you in a moment. Well, remember my instructions, Phipps. Into that room. Yes, my lord. What name, madam? Is Lord Goring not here? I was told he was at home. His lordship is engaged at present with Lord Caversham, madam. How very filial. His lordship told me to ask you, madam, to be kind enough to wait in the drawing room for him. His lordship will come to you there. Lord Goring expects me? Yes, madam. Are you quite sure? His lordship told me that if a lady called, I was to ask her to wait in the drawing room. His lordship's directions on the subject were very precise. How thoughtful of him. To expect the unexpected shows a thoroughly modern intellect. Ugh, how dreary a bachelor's drawing room always looks. I shall have to alter this. No, I don't care for that lamp. It is far too glaring. Light some candles. Certainly, madam. I hope the candles have very becoming shades. We have had no complaints about them, madam, as yet. I wonder what woman he's waiting for tonight. It'll be delightful to catch him. Men always look so silly when they're caught, and they're always being caught. What a very interesting room. What a very interesting picture. I wonder what his correspondence is like. Ugh, what a very uninteresting correspondence. Bills and cards, debts and dowagers. Who on earth writes to him on pink paper? How silly to write on pink paper. Ugh, it looks like the beginning of a middle-class romance. Romance should never begin with sentiment. It should begin with science and end with a settlement. I know that handwriting. That is Gertrude Chilton's. I remember it perfectly. The Ten Commandments in every stroke of the pen and the moral law all over the page. <laughs> I wonder what Gertrude is writing to him about. Something horrid about me, I suppose. How I detest that woman. I trust you. I want you. I am coming to you, Gertrude. I trust you. I want you. I am coming to you. <laughs> the candles in the drawing room are lit, madam, as you directed. Thank you. I trust the shades will be to your liking, madam. They are the most becoming we have. They are the same as his lordship uses himself when he is dressing for dinner. Then I am sure they will be perfectly right. Thank you, madam. My dear father, if I am to get married, surely you will allow me to choose the time, place, and person? Particularly the person? 
That is a matter for me, sir. You would probably make a very poor choice. It is I who should be consulted, not you. There is property at stake. It is not a matter of affection. Affection comes later on in married life. Yes, in married life affection comes when people thoroughly dislike each other, father, doesn't it? Certainly, sir. I mean, certainly not, sir. You are talking very foolishly tonight. What I say is that marriage is a matter for common sense. But women who have common sense are so curiously plain, father, aren't they? Of course, I only speak from hearsay. No woman, plain or pretty, has any common sense at all, sir. Common sense is the privilege of our sex. Quite so. And we men are so self-sacrificing that we never use it, do we, father? I use it, sir. I use nothing else. So my mother tells me. It is the secret of your mother's happiness. You are very heartless, sir. Very heartless. I hope not, father. If you will excuse me. My dear Arthur, what a piece of good luck meeting you on the doorstep. Your servant had just told me you were not home. How extraordinary. The fact is, I am horribly busy tonight, Robert. I gave orders I was not at home to anyone. Even my father had a comparatively cold reception. He complained of a draft the whole time. Ah, you must be at home to me, Arthur. You are my best friend. Perhaps by tomorrow you will be my only friend. My wife has discovered everything. Ah, I guessed as much. Really? How? Oh, merely by something in the expression of your face as you came in. Who told her? Mrs. Cheveley herself. And the woman I love knows that I began my career with an act of low dishonesty, that I built up my life upon sands of shame, that I sold like a common huckster the secret that had been entrusted to me as a man of honor. I thank heaven poor Lord Radley died without knowing I had betrayed him. I would to God I had died before I had been so horribly tempted or had fallen so low. You have heard nothing from Vienna yet, in answer to your wire? Yes. I got a telegram from the First Secretary at eight o'clock tonight. Well? Ah, uh, nothing is absolutely known against her. On the contrary, she occupies a rather high position in society. It is a sort of open secret that Baron Arnheim left her the greater portion of his immense fortune. Beyond that, I can learn nothing. She doesn't turn out to be a spy, then? Oh, spies are of no use nowadays. Their profession is over. The newspapers do all their work instead. And thunderingly well they do it. Arthur, I am parched with thirst. May I ring for something? Uh, some hock and seltzer? Certainly. Let me. Thanks. I don't know what to do, Arthur. I don't know what to do. And you are my only friend. But what a friend you are. The one friend I can trust. I can trust you absolutely, can't I? My dear Robert, of course. Oh, uh, bring some hock and seltzer. Yes, my lord. And Phipps? Yes, my lord. Will you excuse me for a moment, Robert? I want to give some directions to my servant. Uh, certainly. When that lady calls, tell her that I am not expected home this evening. Tell her that I have been suddenly called out of town, you understand? The lady's in that room, my lord. You told me to show her into that room, my lord. You did perfectly right. What a mess I am in. No, no, I think I shall get through it. I'll give her a lecture through the door. Awkward thing to manage, though. Arthur, tell me what I should do. My life seems to have crumbled about me. I, I am a ship without a rudder and a knight without a star. Robert, you love your wife, don't you? 
I love her more than anything in the world. I used to think ambition the great thing. It is not. Love is the great thing in the world. There is nothing but love. And I love her. Oh, but I am defamed in her eyes. I am ignoble in her eyes. There is a wide gulf between us now. She has found me out, Arthur. She has found me out. Has she never in her life done some folly, some indiscretion that she should not forgive your sin? My wife, never. She does not know what weakness or temptation is. I am of clay like other men. She stands apart as good women do, pitiless in her perfection, cold and stern and without mercy. But I love her, Arthur. We are childless, and I have no one else to love, no one else to love me. Perhaps if God had sent us children, she might have been kinder to me. But God has given us a lonely house, and she has cut my heart in two. Oh, don't let us talk of it. I was brutal to her this evening, but I suppose when sinners talk to saints, they are always brutal. I said to her things that were hideously true, on my side, from my standpoint, from the standpoint of men. Don't let us talk of that. Your wife will forgive you. Perhaps at this moment she is forgiving you. She loves you, Robert. Why should she not forgive? God grant it. God grant it. But there is something more I have to tell you, Arthur. Hawk and seltzer, sir. Thank you. Is your carriage here, Robert? No, I walked from the club. Sir Robert will take my cab, Phipps. Yes, my lord. Robert, you don't mind my sending you away? Arthur, you must let me stay for five minutes. I have made up my mind what I'm going to do tonight in the house. The debate on Argentine Canal is to begin at 11. What is that? Nothing. I heard a chair fall in the next room. Someone has been listening. No, no, no one is there. There is someone. There are lights in the room and the door is ajar. Someone has been listening to every secret of my life. Arthur, what does this mean? Robert, you are excited, unnerved. I tell you, there is no one in that room. Sit down, Robert. Do you give me your word there is no one there? Yes. Your word of honor? Yes. Arthur, let me see for myself. No, no. If there is no one there, why should I not look in that room? Arthur, you must let me go into that room and satisfy myself. Let me know that no eavesdropper has heard my life's secret. Arthur, you don't realize what I'm going through. Robert, this must stop. I have told you that there is no one in that room. That is enough. It is not enough. I insist on going into this room. You have told me there is no one there, so what reason can you have for refusing me? For God's sake, don't. There is is someone there, someone whom you must not see. I thought so. I forbid you to enter that room. Stand back. My life is at stake, and I don't care who is there. I will know who it is to whom I have told my secret and my shame. Great heavens, his own wife... What explanation have you to give me for the presence of that woman here? Robert, I swear to you on my honor that that lady is stainless and guiltless of all offense towards you. She is a vile and infamous thing. Don't say that, Robert. It was for your sake she came here. It was to try and save you she came here. She loves you and no one else. You are mad. What have I to do with her intrigues with you? Let her remain your mistress. You are well suited to each other. She corrupt and shameful, you false as a friend, treacherous as an enemy even. It's not true, Robert. Before heaven, it's not true. In her presence and in yours, I will explain all. Let me pass, sir. 
You have lied enough upon your word of honor. Good night to you both. Good evening, Lord Goring. Mrs. Cheveley, great heavens! May I ask you what you were doing in my drawing room? Merely listening. I have a perfect passion for listening through keyholes. One always hears such wonderful things through them. Doesn't that sound rather like tempting Providence? Oh, surely Providence can resist temptation by this time. I'm glad you have called. I'm going to give you some good advice. Oh, pray don't. One should never give a woman anything that she can't wear in the evening. I see you are quite as willful as you used to be. Far more. I have greatly improved. I've had more experience. Too much experience is a dangerous thing. Pray, have a cigarette. Half the pretty women in London smoke cigarettes. Personally, I prefer the other half. Thanks, I never smoke. My dressmaker wouldn't like it, and a woman's first duty in life is to her dressmaker, isn't it? What the second duty is, no one has as yet discovered. You have come here to sell me Robert Chilton's letter, haven't you? To offer it to you on conditions. How did you guess that? Because you haven't mentioned the subject. Have you got it with you? Oh no, a well-made dress has no pockets. What is your price for it? How absurdly English you are. The English think that a checkbook can solve every problem in life. Why, my dear Arthur, I have very much more money than you have, and quite as much as Robert Chilton has got hold of. Money is not what I want. What do you want then, Miss Cheveley? Why don't you call me Laura? I don't like the name. You used to adore it. Yes, that's why. Arthur, you loved me once. Yes. And you asked me to be your wife. That was the natural result of my loving you. And you threw me over because you saw, or said you saw, poor old Lord Mortlake trying to have a violent flirtation with me in the conservatory at Tenby. I'm under the impression that my lawyer settled that matter with you on certain terms, dictated by yourself. At that time, I was poor. You were rich. Quite so. That is why you pretended to love me. Poor old Lord Mortlake, who only had two topics of conversation, his gout and his wife. I never could quite make out which of the two he was talking about. He used the most horrible language about them both. Well, you were silly, Arthur. Why, Lord Mortlake was never anything more to me than an amusement. One of those utterly tedious amusements one only finds at an English country house on an English country Sunday. I don't think anyone at all morally responsible for what he or she does at an English country house. Yes, I know lots of people think that. I loved you, Arthur. My dear Mrs. Cheveley, you have always been far too clever to know anything about love. I did love you. And you loved me. You know you loved me. And love is a very wonderful thing. I suppose that when a man has once loved a woman, he will do anything for her except continue to love her. Yes, except that. I am tired of living abroad. I want to come back to London. I want to have a charming house here. I want to have a salon. If one could only teach the English how to talk and the Irish how to listen, society here would be quite civilised. Besides, I have arrived at the romantic stage. When I saw you last night at the Chilterns, I knew you were the only person I had ever cared for, if I have ever cared for anybody, Arthur. And so, on the morning of the day you marry me, I will give you Robert Chilton's letter. That is my offer. I will give it to you now, if you promise to marry me. Now? 
tomorrow. Are you really serious? Yes, quite serious. I should make you a very bad husband. I don't mind bad husbands. I've had two. They amused me immensely. You mean that you amused yourself immensely, don't you? What do you know about my married life? Nothing. But I can read it like a book. What book? The Book of Numbers. Do you think it is quite charming of you to be so rude to a woman in your own house? In the case of very fascinating women, sex is a challenge, not a defence. I suppose that is meant for a compliment. My dear Arthur, women are never disarmed by compliments. Men always are. That is the difference between the two sexes. Women are never disarmed by anything, as far as I know them. Then you're going to allow your greatest friend, Robert Chilton, to be ruined rather than marry someone who really has considerable attractions left. I thought you would have risen to some great height of self-sacrifice, Arthur. I think you should. And the rest of your life you could spend in contemplating your own perfections. Oh, I do that as it is. And self-sacrifice is a thing that should be put down by law. It is so demoralizing to the people for whom one sacrifices oneself. They always go to the bad. As if anything could demoralize Robert Chilton. You seem to forget that I know his real character. What you know about him is not his real character. It was an act of folly done in his youth. Dishonorable, I admit. Shameful, I admit. Unworthy of him, I admit. And therefore, not his true character. How you men stand up for each other. How you women war against each other. I only war against one woman. Against Gertrude Chilton. I hate her. I hate her now more than ever. Because you have brought a real tragedy into her life, I suppose. Oh, there is only one real tragedy in a woman's life. The fact that her past is always her lover, and her future invariably her husband. Lady Chilton knows nothing of the kind of life to which you are alluding. A woman whose sizing gloves is seven and three quarters never knows much about anything. You know, Gertrude has always worn seven and three quarters. That is one of the reasons why there was never any moral sympathy between us. Well, Arthur, I suppose this romantic interview may be regarded as at an end. You admit it was romantic, don't you? For the privilege of being your wife, I was ready to surrender a great prize, the climax of my diplomatic career. You decline. Very well. If Sir Robert doesn't uphold my Argentine scheme, I expose him. Voila tout. You mustn't do that. It would be vile, horrible, infamous. Oh, don't use big words. They mean so little. It is a commercial transaction, that is all. There is no good mixing up sentimentality in it. I offer to sell Robert Chilton a certain thing. If he won't pay me my price, he will have to pay the world a greater price. There is no more to be said. I must go. Goodbye. Won't you shake hands? With you? No. No. Your transaction with Robert Chilton may pass as a loathsome commercial transaction of a loathsome commercial age, but you seem to have forgotten that you came here tonight to talk of love. You whose lips desecrated the word love. You to whom the thing is a book closely sealed went this afternoon to the house of one of the most noble and gentle women in the world to degrade her husband in her eyes, to try and kill her love for him, to put poison in her heart and bitterness in her life, to break her idol. 
and it may be, spoil her soul. That I cannot forgive you. That was horrible. For that, there can be no forgiveness. Arthur, you are unjust to me. Believe me, you are quite unjust to me. I didn't go to taunt Gertrude at all. I had no idea of doing anything of the kind when I entered. I called with Lady Markby simply to ask whether an ornament, a jewel, that I lost somewhere last night had been found at the Chilterns. If you don't believe me, you can ask Lady Markby. She will tell you it's true. The scene that occurred happened after Lady Markby had left and was really forced on me by Gertrude's rudeness and sneers. I called, oh, a little out of malice, if you like, but really to ask if a diamond brooch of mine had been found. That was the origin of the whole thing. A diamond snake brooch with a ruby? Yes, how did you know? Because it is found. In point of fact, I found it myself and stupidly forgot to tell the butler anything about it as I was leaving. It is in this drawer. No, that one. This is the brooch, isn't it? Yes. I am so glad to have it back. It was a, a present. Won't you wear it? Certainly, if you pin it. Why do you put it on as a bracelet? I never knew it could be worn as a bracelet. Really? No. But it looks very well on me as a bracelet, doesn't it? Yes. Much better than when I saw it last. When did you see it last? Oh, ten years ago on Lady Berkshire, from whom you stole it. What do you mean? I mean that you stole that ornament from my cousin, Mary Berkshire, to whom I gave it when she was married. Suspicion fell on a wretched servant who was sent away in disgrace. I recognized it last night. I determined to say nothing about it till I had found the thief. I have found the thief now, and I have heard her own confession. It is not true. You know it is true. Why, thief is written across your face at this moment. I will deny the whole affair from beginning to end. I will say that I have never seen this wretched thing, and it was never in my possession. The drawback of stealing a thing, Mrs. Cheveley, is that one never knows how wonderful the thing that one steals is. You can't get that bracelet off, unless you know where the spring is. And I see you don't know where the spring is. It is rather difficult to find. You brute! You coward! Oh, don't use big words. They mean so little. What are you going to do? I'm going to ring for my servant. He is an admirable servant. Always comes in the moment one rings for him. When he comes, I will tell him to fetch the police. The, the police? What for? Tomorrow the Berkshires will prosecute you. That is what the police are for. Don't do that. I will do anything you want. Anything in the world you want. Give me Robert Chilton's letter. Stop. Stop. Let me have some time to think. Give me Robert Chilton's letter. I have not got it with me. I will give it to you tomorrow. You know you are lying. Give it to me at once. This is it. Yes. For so well-dressed a woman, Mrs. Cheveley, you have moments of admirable common sense. I congratulate you. Uh, please, get me a glass of water. Certainly. Thank you. Will you help me on with my cloak? With pleasure. Thanks. I am never going to try to harm Robert Chilton again. Fortunately, you have not the chance, Mrs. Sheevely. Well, even if I had the chance, I wouldn't. On the contrary, I am going to render him a great service. I am charmed to hear it. It is a reformation. Yes. I, I can't bear so upright a gentleman, so honourable an English gentleman, being so shamefully deceived and so... Well? Well, I find that 
somehow Gertrude Chilton's dying speech and confession has strayed into my pocket. What do you mean? I mean that I am going to send Robert Chilton the love letter his wife wrote to you tonight. Love letter? <laughs> I want you. I trust you. I am coming to you, Gertrude. You wretched woman. Must you always be thieving? Give me back that letter. I will take it from you by force. You shall not leave my room till I have got it. Yes, my lord. Lord Goring merely rang that you should show me out. Good night, Lord Goring. Fourth Act. Back in the morning room at Sir Robert Chilton's house. The flowers that were once there have wilted. The fireplace is unlit. The house is quiet. Lord Goring is standing by the fireplace with his hands in his pockets. He's looking rather bored. After a moment of waiting, he walks over to the desk and rings the servant bell. This is a great nuisance. I can't find anyone in this house to talk to. And I am full of interesting information. I feel like the latest edition of something or other. Sir Robert is still at the foreign office, my lord. Lady Chilton not down yet? Her ladyship has not yet left her room. Miss Chilton has just come in from riding. Ah, that is something. Lord Caversham has been waiting some time in the library for Sir Robert. I told him your lordship was here. Thank you. Would you gladly tell him I've gone? I shall do so, my lord. Really, I don't want to meet my father three days running. There's a great deal too much excitement for any son. Hope to goodness he won't come up. Father should be neither seen nor heard. That is the only proper basis for family life. Mothers are different. Mothers are darlings. Well, sir, what are you doing here? Wasting your life as usual, I suppose. My dear father, when one pays a visit, it is for the purpose of wasting other people's time, not one's own. Have you been thinking over what I spoke to you about last night? I have been thinking about nothing else. Engaged to be married yet? Not yet. But I hope to be before lunchtime. You can have until dinner time, if it would be of any convenience to you. Thanks awfully, but I think I'd sooner be engaged before lunch. Huh. Never know when you are serious or not. Neither do I, Father. I suppose you've read The Times this morning. The Times? Certainly not. I only read The Morning Post. All that one should know about modern life is where the duchesses are. Anything else is quite demoralizing. Do you mean to say you've not read The Times' leading article on Robert Chilton's career? Good heavens. No. What does it say? What should it say, sir? Everything complimentary, of course. Chilton's speech last night on this Argentine canal scheme was one of the finest pieces of oratory delivered in the house since Canning. Ah, Never heard of Canning. Never wanted to. And did... did Chilton uphold the scheme? Uphold it, sir? How little you know about him. Why, he denounced it roundly, and the whole system of modern political finance. This speech is the turning point in his career, as the Times pointed out. You should read this article, sir. Ah, Sir Robert Chilton, most rising of young statesmen, brilliant orator, unblemished career, well-known integrity of character, represents what is best in English public life. Noble contrast to the lax morality so common among foreign politicians. They will never say that of you, sir. I certainly hope not, Father. 
However, I am delighted at what you tell me about Robert. Thoroughly delighted. It shows he has got pluck. He's got more than pluck, sir. He has got genius. Ah, I prefer pluck. It is not so common nowadays as genius is. I wish you would go into Parliament. My dear father, only people who look dull ever get into the House of Commons, and only people who are dull ever succeed there. Why don't you try to do something useful in life? I am far too young. I hate this affectation of youth, sir. It is a great deal too prevalent nowadays. Youth isn't an affectation. Youth is an art. Why don't you propose to that pretty Miss Chiltern? I'm of a very nervous disposition, especially in the morning. I don't suppose there's the smallest chance of her accepting you. I don't know how the bedding stands today. If she did accept you, she would be the prettiest fool in all of England. That is just what I should like to marry. A thoroughly sensible wife would reduce me to a condition of absolute idiocy in less than six months. You don't deserve her, sir. My dear father, if we men marry the women we deserved, we should have a very bad time of it. Oh! How do you do, Lord Cavisham? I hope Lady Cavisham is quite well. Lady Cavisham is as usual, as usual. Good morning, Miss Mabel. And Lady Cavisham's bonnets, are they at all better? They've had a serious relapse, I'm sorry to say. Good morning, Miss Mabel. I hope an operation will not be necessary. If it is, we shall have to give Lady Cavisham a narcotic. Otherwise, she would never consent to have a feather touched. Good morning, Miss Mabel. Oh, are you here? Of course, you understand that after your breaking your appointment, I am never going to speak to you again. Oh, please don't say such a thing. You're the one person in London I really like to have to listen to me. Lord Goring, I never believe a single word that either you or I say to each other. You are quite right, my dear. Quite right, as far as he is concerned, I mean. Do you think you could possibly make your son behave a little better occasionally? Just as a change. I regret to say, Miss Chiltern, that I have no influence at all over my son. I wish I had. If I had, I know what I would make him do. I'm afraid that he has one of those terribly weak natures that are not susceptible to influence. He is very heartless. Very heartless. It seems to me that I am a little in the way here. It is very good for you to be in the way, and to know what people say of you behind your back. I don't at all like knowing what people say of me behind my back. It makes me far too conceited. After that, my dear, I really must bid you good morning. Oh, I hope you are not going to leave me all alone with Lord Goring, especially at such an early hour in the day. I'm afraid I can't take him with me to Downing Street. It is not the Prime Minister's day for seeing the unemployed. Pleasure as always, Miss Chiltern. People who don't keep their appointments in the park are horrid. Detestable. I am glad you admit it. But I wish you wouldn't look so pleased about it. I can't help it. I always look pleased when I'm with you. Then I suppose it is my duty to remain with you. Of course it is. Well, my duty is a thing I never do, on principle. It always depresses me. So I am afraid I must leave you. Please don't, Miss Mabel. I have something very particular to say to you. Oh. Is it a proposal? Well, ye yes, it is. I am bound to say it is. I am so glad. That makes the second today. The second today? What conceited ass has been impertinent enough to dare to propose to you before I had proposed to you? Tommy Trafford, of course. It is one of Tommy's days for proposing. He always proposes on Tuesdays and Thursdays during the season. You didn't accept him, I hope. I make it a rule never to accept Tommy. 
That is why he goes on proposing. Of course, as you didn't turn up this morning, I very nearly said yes. It would have been an excellent lesson, both for him and for you, if I had. It would have taught you both better manners. Oh, bother Tommy Trafford. Tommy's a silly little ass. I love you. I know. And I think you might have mentioned it before. I am sure I've given you heaps of opportunities. Mabel, do be serious. Please be serious. Ah, that is the sort of thing a man always says to a girl before he has been married to her. He never says it afterwards. Mabel, I have told you that I love you. Can't you love me a little in return? You silly Arthur. If you knew anything about anything, which you don't, you would know that I adore you. Everyone in London knows it, except you. It is a public scandal the way I adore you. I have been going about for the last six months, telling the whole of society that I adore you. I wonder you consent to have anything to say to me. I have no character left at all. At least I feel so happy that I'm quite sure I have no character left at all. Dear, do you know I was awfully afraid of being refused? But you never have been refused yet by anybody, have you, Arthur? I can't imagine anyone refusing you. Of course, I'm not nearly good enough for you, Mabel. I am so glad, darling. I was afraid you were. And I'm... I'm a little over thirty. Dear, you look weeks younger than that. How sweet of you to say so. And it is only fair to tell you frankly that I am fearfully extravagant. But so am I, Arthur. So we're sure to agree. And now I must go and see Gertrude. Must you really? Yes. Then do tell her I want to talk to her particularly. I've been waiting here all the morning to see either her or Robert. Do you mean to say you didn't come here expressly to propose to me? No. That was a flash of genius. Your first? My last. I am delighted to hear it. Now, don't stir. I'll be back in five minutes. And don't fall into any temptations while I'm away. Dear Mabel, while you are away, there are none. It makes me horribly dependent on you. Good morning, dear. How pretty you are looking. How pale you are looking, Gertrude. It is most becoming. Good morning, Lord Goring. Good morning, Lady Chilton. I shall be under the conservatory under the second palm on the left. Second on the left? Yes. The usual palm tree. Lady Chilton, I have a certain amount of very good news to tell you. Mrs. Cheveley gave me up Robert's letter last night, and I burned it. Robert is safe. Safe? Oh, I am so glad of that. What a good friend you are to him. To us. There is only one person now that could be said to be in any danger. Who is that? Yourself. I? In danger? What do you mean? Danger is too great a word. It's a word I should not have used. But I admit I have something to tell you that may distress you, that terribly distresses me. Yesterday evening you wrote me a very beautiful, womanly letter, asking me for my help. He wrote to me as one of your oldest friends, one of your husband's oldest friends. Mrs. Cheveley stole that letter from my rooms. What use is it to her? Why should she not have it? Lady Chilton, I will be quite frank with you. Mrs. Cheveley puts a certain construction on that letter and proposes to send it to your husband. <laughs> but what construction could she put on it? Oh, no, no, not that. Not, not that. If I in... In trouble in wanting your help and trusting you, proposed to come to you, that you, that you may advise me, assist me. Oh, the women so horrible as that. And she proposed to send it to 
my husband. Tell me what happened. Tell me all that happened. Mrs. Cheveley was concealed in a room adjoining my library, without my knowledge. I thought that the person who was waiting in that room to see me was yourself. Robert came in unexpectedly. A chair or something fell in the room. He forced his way in, and he discovered her. We had a terrible scene. I still thought it was you. He left me in anger. At the end of everything, Mrs. Cheveley got possession of your letter. She stole it. When or how, I don't know. What hour did this happen? At half past ten. And now I propose that we tell Robert the whole thing at once. You want me to tell Robert that the woman you expected was not Mrs. Cheveley, but myself? That it was I whom you thought was concealed in a room in your house at half past ten o'clock at night? You want me to tell him that? I think it is better that he should know the exact truth. I couldn't. May I do it? No. You are wrong, Lady Chilton. No. The letter must be intercepted, and that is all. But how can I do it? Letters arrive for him every moment of the day. His secretaries open them and hand them to him. I dare not ask the servants to bring me his letters. It would be impossible. It... Why don't you tell me what to do? Pray be calm, Lady Chilton, and answer the questions I am going to put to you. You said his secretaries open his letters. Yes. Who is with him today, Mr... Trafford, isn't it? No, uh, Mr. Monford, I think. You can trust him. How would I know? He would do what you asked him, wouldn't he? I think so. Your letter was on pink paper. He could recognize it without reading it, couldn't he, by the color? I suppose so. Is he in the house now? Yes. Then I will go and see him myself, and tell him that a certain letter, written on pink paper, is to be forwarded to Robert today, and that at all costs it must not reach him. Oh, Robert is coming upstairs with the letter in his hand. It has reached him already. Oh, you have saved his life. What have you done with mine? I want you. I trust you. I am coming to you. Gertrude. Oh, my love. Is this true? Do you indeed trust me and want me? If so, it was for me to come to you, not for you to write of coming to me. This letter of yours, Gertrude makes me feel that nothing in the world's may do can hurt me now. You want me, Gertrude? Yes. You trust me, Gertrude? Yes. Oh, why did you not add you loved me? Because I love you. Gertrude, you don't know what I feel. When Monford passed me a letter across the table, he had opened it by mistake, I suppose, without looking at the handwriting on the envelope. And I read it. Oh, I did not care what disgrace or punishment was in store for me. I only thought you loved me still. There is no disgrace in store for you, nor any public shame. Mrs. Cheveley has handed over to Lord Goring the document that was in her possession, and he has destroyed it. Are you sure of this, Gertrude? Yes. Lord Goring has just told me. That I am safe. Oh, what a wonderful thing to be safe. For two days I have been in terror. I am safe now. How did Arthur destroy my letter? Tell me. He burned it. Oh, I wish I had seen that one sin of my youth burning to ashes. How many men there are in modern life who would like to see their past burn to white ashes before them. Is Arthur still here? Yes, he is in the conservatory. I am so glad now I made that speech last night in the house. So glad. I made it thinking that public disgrace might be the result, but it has not been so. Public honor has been the result. I think so. I fear so, almost. 
For although I am safe from detection, although every proof against me is destroyed, I suppose, Gertrude, oh, I suppose I should retire from public life. Oh, yes, Robert, you should do that. It is your duty to do that. It is much to surrender. No, it will be much to gain. And you would be happy living somewhere alone with me, abroad, perhaps, or in the country away from London, away from public life. You would have no regrets. Oh, none, Robert. And your ambition for me. You used to be ambitious for me. Oh, my ambition. I have none now, but that we two may love each other. It was your ambition that led you astray. Let us not talk about ambition. Oh, my ambition. I have none now, but that we two may love each other. It was your ambition that led you astray. Let us not talk about ambition. My dear fellow, I'll tell you at once. At the present moment, under the usual palm tree, I mean in the conservatory... Lord Cavisham. That admirable father of mine really makes a habit of turning up at the wrong moment. It is very heartless of him. It's very heartless indeed. Thank you, Mason. Show him in. Good morning, Lady Chiltern. Warmest congratulations to you, Chiltern, on your brilliant speech last night. I have just left the Prime Minister, and you are to have the vacant seat in the Cabinet. A seat in the Cabinet? Yes. Here is the Prime Minister's letter. A seat in the Cabinet? Certainly. And you deserve it, too. You have got what we want so much in political life nowadays. High character, high moral tone, high principles. Everything that you have not got, sir, and never will have. I don't like principles, Father. I prefer prejudices. <clears throat> I cannot accept this offer, Lord Caversham. I have made up my mind to decline it. Decline it, sir. My intention is to retire at once from public life. Decline a seat in the cabinet and retire from public life. Never heard such damn nonsense in the whole course of my existence. I beg your pardon, Lady Chiltern. Chiltern, I beg your pardon. Don't grin like that, sir. No, father. Lady Chiltern, you are a sensible woman, the most sensible woman in London, the most sensible woman I know. Will you kindly prevent your husband from making such a... from taking such a... Will you kindly do that, Lady Chiltern? I think my husband is right in his determination, Lord Caversham. I approve of it. You approve of it? Good heavens. I admire him for it. I admire him immensely for it. I have never admired him so much before. He is finer than I ever thought of him. You will go and write your letter to the Prime Minister now, won't you? Don't hesitate about it, Robert. I suppose I had better write it at once. Such offers are not repeated. I will ask you to excuse me for a moment, Lord Caversham. I may come with you, Robert, may I not? Yes, Gertrude. What is the matter with this family? Something wrong here, eh? Idiocy? Hereditary, I suppose? Both of them, too. Wife as well as the husband. Very sad. Very sad indeed. And they are not an old family. Can't understand it. It is not idiocy, father, I assure you. Uh, what is it then, sir? Well, it is what is called nowadays a high moral tone, father. That is all. Hate these newfangled names. Same thing as we used to call idiocy fifty years ago. Shan't stay in this house any longer. I'll just go in here a moment, Father. Third palm tree to the left, uh, the usual palm tree. What, sir? I beg your pardon, Father, I forgot. 
The conservatory, father. The conservatory. There is someone there I want you to talk to. What about, sir? About me, father. Not a subject on which much eloquence is possible. No, father. But the lady's like me. She doesn't care much for eloquence in others. She thinks it a little loud. Lady Chilton, why are you playing Mrs. Cheveley's cards? I don't understand you. Mrs. Cheveley made an attempt to ruin your husband, either to drive him from public life or to make him adopt a dishonorable position. From the latter tragedy, you saved him. The former you are now thrusting on him. Why should you do him the wrong Mrs. Cheveley tried to do and failed? Not goring. Lady Chilton, allow me. You wrote me a letter last night in which you said you trusted me and wanted my help. Now is the moment when you really want my help. Now is the time when you have got to trust me, to trust in my counsel and judgment. You love Robert. Do you want to kill his love for you? What sort of existence will he have if you rob him of the fruits of his ambition? If you take him from the splendor of a great political career? If you close the doors of public life against him? If you condemn him to sterile failure? He who was made for triumph and success? Women are not meant to judge us, but to forgive us when we need forgiveness. Pardon, not punishment, is their mission. Why should you scourge him with rods for a sin done in his youth before he knew you, before he knew himself? Don't make a terrible mistake, Lady Chilton. A woman who can keep a man's love and love him in return has done all the world wants. But it is my husband himself who wishes to retire from public life. He feels it is his duty. It was he who first said so. Rather than lose your love, Robert would do anything. Wreck his whole career as he is on the brink of doing now. He is making for you a terrible sacrifice. Take my advice, Lady Chilton, and do not accept a sacrifice so great. If you do, you will live to repent it bitterly. We men and women are not made to accept such sacrifices from each other. We are not worthy of them. Besides, Robert has been punished enough. We have both been punished. I set him up too high. Do not for that reason set him down now too low. If he has fallen from his altar, do not thrust him into the mire. Failure to Robert would be the very mire of shame. Power is his passion. He would lose everything, even his power to feel love. Your husband's life is at this moment in your hands. Your husband's love is in your hands. Don't mar both for him. Gertrude, here is the draft of my letter. Shall I read it to you? Let me see it. What are you doing? Our life revolves in curves of emotions. It is upon lines of intellect that one's life progresses. And I will not spoil your life for you, nor see you spoil it as a sacrifice to me. Gertrude. Gertrude. You can forget. Men easily forget. And I forgive. That is how women help the world. I see that now. My wife. My wife. Arthur, it seems that I'm always to be in your debt. Oh, dear, no, Robert. Your debt is to Lady Chilton, not to me. I owe you much. And now tell me what you were going to ask me just now as Lord Caversham came in. Robert, you are your sister's guardian. 
and I want your consent to my marriage with her. That is all. Oh, I am so glad. I am so glad. Thank you, Lady Chilton. My sister to be your wife? Yes. Arthur, I am very sorry, but the thing is quite out of the question. I have to think of Mabel's future happiness, and I don't think her happiness would be safe in your hands. And I cannot have her sacrificed. Sacrificed? Yes, utterly sacrificed. Loveless marriages are horrible. But there is one thing worse than an absolutely loveless marriage. A marriage in which there is love, but on one side only. Faith, but on one side only. Devotion, but on one side only. And in which of the two hearts one is sure to be broken. But I love Mabel. No other woman has any place in my life. Robert, if they love each other, why should they not be married? Arthur cannot bring Mabel the love that she deserves. What reason have you for saying that? Do you really require me to tell you? Certainly I do. As you choose. When I called on you yesterday evening, I found Mrs. Cheveley concealed in your rooms. It was between ten and eleven o'clock at night. I do not wish to say anything more. Your relations with Mrs. Cheveley have, as I said to you last night, nothing whatsoever to do with me. I know you engaged to be married to her once. The fascination she exercised over you then seems to have returned. You spoke to me last night of her as of a woman pure and stainless, a woman whom you respected and honored. That may be so, but I cannot give my sister's life into your hands. It would be wrong of me. It would be unjust, infamously unjust to her. I have nothing more to say. Robert, it was not Mrs. Cheveley whom Lord Goring expected last night. Not Mrs. Cheveley? Who was it then? Lady Chilton. It was your own wife. Robert, yesterday afternoon Lord Goring told me that if I was ever in trouble I could come to him for help. And he was our oldest and best friend. Later on, after that terrible scene in this room, I wrote to him telling him that I trusted him, that I had need of him, and that I was coming to him for help and advice. Yes, that letter. <laughs> I didn't go to Lord Goring's after all. I felt that it is from ourselves alone that help can come. Pride made me think of that. Mrs. Cheveley went. She stole my letter and sent it anonymously to you this morning, that you should think that Oh, Robert, I cannot tell you what she wished you to think. What? Had I fallen so low in your eyes that you thought that even for a moment I could have doubted your goodness? Gertrude, Gertrude, you are to me the white image of all good things. And sin can never touch you. Arthur, you can go to Mabel, and you have my best wishes. Oh, stop a moment. There is no name at the beginning of this letter. The brilliant Mrs. Cheveley does not seem to have noticed that. There should be a name. Let me write yours. It is you I trust and need. You and no one else. Well, really, Lady Chilton, I think I should have back my own letter. No, you should have Mabel. Well, I hope she hasn't changed her mind. It's nearly twenty minutes since I saw her last. Lord Goring, I think your father's conversation much more improving than yours. I'm only going to talk to Lord Caversham in the future, and always under the usual palm tree. Darling. What does this mean, sir? You don't mean to say that this charming, clever young woman has been so foolish as to accept you? Certainly, father. 
and Chilton's been wise enough to accept the seat in the cabinet. I am very glad to hear that, Chilton. I congratulate you, sir. If the country doesn't go to the dogs or the radicals, we shall have you prime minister someday. Luncheon is on the table, my lady. You'll stop to luncheon, Lord Caversham, won't you? With pleasure. And I'll drive you down to Downing Street afterwards, Chilton. You have a great future before you. A great future. Wish I could say the same for you, sir. But your career will have to be entirely domestic. Yes, father. I prefer domestic. And if you don't make this young lady an ideal husband, I'll cut you off without a shilling. An ideal husband? Oh, I don't think I should like that. It sounds like something in the next world. What do you want him to be then, dear? He can be what he chooses. All I want is to be... To be... Oh, a real wife to him. Upon my word, there is a good deal of common sense in that, Lady Chilton. Aren't you coming in, Robert? Gertrude, is it love you feel for me, or is it pity, merely? It is love, Robert. Love and only love. For both of us, a new life is beginning. The End Thank you for listening. This has been a Standby for Places production of An Ideal Husband by Oscar Wilde. We hope you enjoyed this production from Standby for Places. New episodes come out every Wednesday, so don't forget to subscribe.